What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, as always, thanks for tuning in. Exciting one today. Really, a topic that, I'm going to tell you this, we're talking to a guy, his profession I wanted to be. I wanted to do this, and I knew nothing about it. It just sounded cool. This job just it just sounds great. So who are we talking to? We're talking to a man named George Franklin. George is the author of a book, Raisin Bran and Other Serial Wars, 30 Years of Lobbying for the Most Famous Tiger in the World. That tiger is Kellogg, right? Tony the Tiger. I think. Actually, I just made that assumption. But I'm pretty sure it's a it's a good assumption. So anyways, George is a lawyer and former vice president of worldwide government relations for Kellogg Company. Pretty sure that just means corporate lobbyist. But he's held numerous positions in and out of government, including uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce, U.S. Department of Agriculture. He was chairman of the American Frozen Food Institute. So he's been in and out, but he's also been a corporate lobbyist, right? For those of you that have ever seen the movie Thank You for Smoking, that might be your idea of a lobbyist. And it kind of was mine. When I say I wanted to be one back in the day, it's just because all I knew was like they schmooze and they go talk and they have fun and they drink. It sounds like a pretty good gig. So I was really excited to have George on the show to talk about his book and to really give us that inside look. Because that's what he does in his book, Serial Wars, okay? He opens up an industry that really impacts our daily lives, and we don't truly understand. We don't have that inside track. I think that's enough of a setup for George. Guys, I also want to say thank you to those of you who have taken our Mastermind survey. For those of you that haven't, and you're interested in our Mastermind, go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash mastermind. You may have heard me mention it on previous episodes, but for now, I'm just going to give you the tagline. The podcast gives you the who knew. The mastermind gives you the how to. So we're going to be learning how to take action on a number of different fronts in this mastermind, utilizing the brand and recognition of smart people to get some great guests, hopefully some terrific webinars, workshops, all that good stuff. Smartpeoplepodcast.com slash mastermind. All right. I'm really excited to bring you this episode. I'm going to get it over to him. I think you'll enjoy it. I think it'll help pass the time on the metro, the bus, the walk, the run, whatever you're doing. Let us know. We're at Twitter, at SmartPeoplePod. Here it is, George Franklin.
George, first, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show. I, I cannot wait to talk about your life, your career, and your new book, Raisin Bran and Other Serial Wars. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. And uh, my, my life's not all that exciting, but the I think the life of lobbying is, is interesting. And uh, it was interesting. I, I wrote the book. I had three questions I got for 30 years. And it was, how do you become a lobbyist? <laughs> What do lobbyists do, and why does Kellogg need a lobbyist? I got that question everywhere I went in some form or fashion, like I said, for 30 years. Wow. And then the other reason I wrote the book, though, was that you know, I worked at Kellogg with a lot of really smart people. They had MBAs from all sorts of you know prestigious schools. But I started realizing they really didn't have any concept of the government relations function. So I started looking into it, and uh, I used to be the chairman of the board of Western Michigan University, which has a pretty good-sized business school. And I talked to the folks over there, and I said, do you teach government relations? They said, no, no, that's political science. And I said, well, you know, every major company in the United States has a government relations department, just like they have sales, finance, and marketing. But business schools just act like it doesn't exist. Right. So I did a kind of a casual survey with the business school helping me. And it turns out that fundamentally business schools, there is no business school that teaches it. I found one, one sort of class at Georgetown that sounded close and I'm not talking about political philosophy or sort of these cosmic approaches. I'm talking about nitty gritty day to day, what do you do in a government relations department of a company? Mm -hmm. And it just really isn't taught. I know. I mean, I, I was a business major and, and, um, many people told me, Hey, you should look into lobbying. And I wanted to, from the very little bit I knew, I was like, wait, so I just go schmooze people, have a good time, get them to like me and, uh, get paid a lot of money. And that's, that's as far as the conversation went. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's amazing. And, uh, so anyways, I, I wrote the book. I call it a plain ride overview. It's purposely not a lengthy book, but it's, I hope most people feel it's nonpartisan. It's not philosophical. Um, Politico and some other people have called it humorous, which I don't think the world is all that serious. So I tried to make it somewhat humorous. Um, but it's real life stuff of what you do as a lobbyist for one of the bigger companies in the world, Kellogg Company. Absolutely. It, it's been interesting. I'm, I'm on the reading list. Uh, actually, I just got a note. Albion College, which is a liberal arts college here in Michigan, has it on the reading list. I know Tufts has it on the reading list. Um, I've been to the University of Michigan. I've been to, oh, I don't know, you know, University of Georgia. I've been um, all sorts of places with it. And I think the reaction has been pretty much the same everywhere. And it's like, wow, this is, you know, this is all new and different. So it's, it's been fun. It's been fun. Yeah. And, and, and I got to admit, like when I got to read it and, and we were talking about it, my boss actually recommended it to me. It was the first time I kind of got a grasp for what lobbying is, even though I think I knew a little bit more in terms of, you know, I knew most major corporations had it, yeah. but, but I want to start. So let's, let's take it down to the, the basics you know, not just, well, first we'll say, what is, what is it to be a lobbyist? And what was, if you could define, you know, what was your job description or your role in, in the company, in Kellogg? My, my job was to make money. And if you're not in the business of making money, the function shouldn't be part of a business. And, you know, I used to used to say the sales guy, the sales department fellows used to say, you know, Franklin, you're really you ought to be one of us. I mean, you're in the business of selling. Mm -hmm. And what I was doing was selling ideas that hopefully impacted public policy that affected the bottom line of the company. And um I used to always explain that, you know, I'm not a liberal Democrat. I mean, I'm not a liberal conservative Democrat or Republican. Uh, I'm, I'm nonpartisan, non-philosophical. Just like when you're selling cornflakes, you're not really worried about who's buying it off the shelf. Well, I wasn't really worried about the politics of who was buying what we were selling. I just wanted to sell it. Mm -hmm. 
and and I mean that in a in a uh, in a positive fashion. The other thing is I do when I'm out giving my speeches, I always like to put up there's a chart that you know lobbyists are held in the highest low esteem. I like to say. Yeah. I mean, we're up there with telemarketers and used car salesmen and. And the interesting part, though, Chris, is to be a good lobbyist is to be exactly the opposite of that impression, hmm. because what you are selling is truth, candor, reliability and trust. And the way I like to put it is, you know, I could go to a Congress person or a senator and maybe pull a fast one one time, mislead him or her into doing something or supporting something or giving them facts and figures that aren't accurate to try to get something done. But after I've done that one time, I'm out of business. Mm -hmm. I'm done. So what you're selling is, like I said, truth, candor, reliability, and trust, because you go to a member of the house and you ask them to do something. And what they do is they trust you that you're not sending them down some path they shouldn't be going, that they can rely on what you're telling them. And so that it, it ruins the narrative. You know, everybody wants to say, well, you know, they use car salesmen and telemarketers. Well, it's, it's actually the opposite. And sure, there's some bad cats. I mean, there's some bad lobbyists. There's bad companies. There's Enron, Tyco, and, you know, Volkswagen. Mm -hmm. So it's like any business, they're good and bad actors, but it it's the opposite. So the other thing is, I think I mentioned earlier, my wife was a, on the Senate staff for a Republican U.S. Senator. And we've talked about this a lot in the sense that there are, you know, a small group of people that work even when you were in U.S. Senator. You know, you, you can't have an expert on every field. And so what you rely on is lobbyists coming in from the different disciplines when these issues come up to give you the straight skinny mm -hmm. or to, or to argue it out. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, I have a couple friends who are in the pharmaceutical sales industry. And when I learned about it, they said, look, these doctors can't know everything about every drug. They just can't. So yeah. they rely on us to give them the truth and give them studies and through that to sell our product. And, you know, in the same fashion, I want to go back to what you were saying, what you're selling as a lobbyist, because I fully understand the idea that you have to be a straight shooter. We, we talk about it on the podcast. Dan Pink, in his book, To Sell as Human, explains how gone are the days of a true used car salesman because information is easily accessible. You know, right. you can know the cost of this car, so you can't con me on it. So I can see that being the same in lobbyists. However, just because you're honest or uh, you use candor doesn't mean that what you're selling is uh, beneficial to society, correct? I mean, would you agree with that statement? Well, I mean, I, I never was asked or did anything that I was personally uncomfortable with lobbying for Kellogg. I mean, I, I'll tell you... You know, people ask me, well, could you lobby for anything? I said, you know, I, I couldn't lobby for tobacco. I, you know, I just couldn't do that. Right. Do I think of less the people that lobby for tobacco? No. I mean, if they're comfortable doing it, so be it. Um, but I, I think a classic example I, I have in the book, Chris, is part of the name of the book came from Raisin Bran and other cereal wars was Kellogg for years. We tried to get Raisin Bran into the WIC program. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, and if I could, you know, belabor this for a minute. Oh, absolutely. I love uh, this stuff. What what happened was the WIC program is a, you know, multi-billion dollar feeding program. And cereal is part of the program. And it's hundreds of millions of dollars of cereal is bought. Well, to have a cereal in the program, there are a few criteria but one of which it has to have fortification of, what is it, 45% iron and have less than six grams of sugar per serving. Mm -hmm. Well, General Mills owns the program with Cheerios. I mean, they just make hundreds of millions of dollars. Kellogg had cereals that were qualified for the program, but nothing near as popular as Cheerios, mm -hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. 
Well, for mills, I mean, it's a money machine. They don't have to market. They don't have to promote. They don't have to coupon. They just get qualified. People go into the store with vouchers, pick up Cheerios, which is on the approved list, and walk out the door. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, you know, what What do we have that can compete? So we looked at it, and we had brand flakes were in the program. But, you know, let's be honest, that's kind of boring, right? That's not the most popular cereal in the world. Yeah. And then we started looking at it and said, well, what about Raisin Bran? And then I started looking into it, and the United States Department of Agriculture – with federal money through the states, hands out brochures at the WIC office that says, put fruit in your cereal. Put raisins in your cereal. And so we thought, well, that's what we do. We take bran flakes, which are in the program, and we put raisins in there. (laughs) But when you put raisins in there, it triggers the six gram sugar limit because of the inherent sugar in the raisins. Exactly. Yep. Uh huh. So we were disqualified. So we thought, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. We're, we're being disqualified for doing what the government is telling people to do. So I set off to see if we could get raisin bran qualified and ex- a fruit exemption is what we were looking for to make it part of the WIC program. So back to what lobbyists do, which, by the way, I failed miserably. <laughs> Wait, so so is it not in the WIC program to this day? No, no. It's huh, interesting. Because you put the fruit in, it goes over six grams. Well, you know, General Mills fought us tooth and nail. And here's another misconception, and let me digress for a second. Most business lobbying is business versus business. And one of the things I bring out in my speeches is when people say it's pro-business, I say, I have no idea what pro-business means. (laughs) I was a head lobbyist for Kellogg for, what, 25, 30 years. I don't even, I have no idea what pro-business means. And they go, they look at you, what are you talking about? And I said, look at it this way. If you're the EPA and you put emission controls on the energy company of whatever state you're in, They scream bloody murder. This is anti-business. We're going to have to raise the rates. We're going to have to incur extra costs. This is anti-business if there ever was one. If you make wind turbines in Muskegon, Michigan, it's pro-business. I don't know what the word pro-business means. Depends on what business you're in. So anyways, back to Raisin Bran. So I'm trying to, I'm with a, there's a fellow named Tom Jolly, who's a great lawyer lobbyist in Washington. We had Tom helping us and we're knocking on all these doors explaining that there ought to be a fruit exemption. Well, in General Mills, of course, they come to protect their turf and they're, oh, this is the thin edge of the wedge. And you know what they're up to, they're really trying to get frosted flakes in here. And this is the beginning of, you know, sugar laden cereals in the program. Mm. We keep saying all we want is a fruit exemption. We want to be able to do the very thing that the federal government is telling people to do with the same tax dollars. Anyways, so Senator Carl Levin, who was in the United States Senator from Michigan, who I think everyone would agree, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, is the most one of the most decent, thoughtful guys you're ever going to have in there. We go to Levin. And uh, he says, uh, yeah, this is pretty interesting. He said, I'm going to call in. He called in one of the lead consumer groups. He said, I want to have a meeting in my office and I want to hear this out. So we go into Carl Levin's office. And I believe if I remember, it was Bob Greenstein who ran the Center for Budget Priorities might have been. I might be messing up the name. But so he gets us in his office and he said, I want to hear this out. So I walked in with a brochure from the Calhoun County Health Department, where they implement the WIC program in Battle Creek, Michigan. And it's a brochure that says, eat cereal, put fruit on your cereal, (laughs) put raisins on your cereal, (laughs) paid for by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I said, Senator, you know, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, we're doing what they told us to do. And he listened to the other fellow from the consumer group who 
you know, well, they're trying to get, you know, eventually this will end up in the demise of the program and sugar laden cereals will be in and, you know, all the other things I was talking about. And finally, Senator Levin looked up at the consumer guys. He said, you know, I'm with the company on this one. I mean, this this doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, he's he pretty well known as a liberal Democrat. Mm -hmm. He said, but on this one. So that's what you do as a lobbyist. Right. You go and you argue these issues in front of people and you try to make your case. Well, and it makes a lot of sense. But so I want to talk about that because when we said, you know, kind of what's your job as a lobbyist, it's, well, first and foremost to make money. And I understand that, right? Like if yep. you believe in capitalism, come on, that that's now some might say that's what's gotten us into a lot of trouble. And yep. there's an argument there. But in the same sense, is it just trying to spin what's good for the company in a way that seems good for the recipients? Because like, I, I mean... I, I struggle here because I know, so for example, Raisin Bran or Cheerios, you know, in the fortification, you have people who can't afford a lot of food being able to at least get the nutrients and, you know, albeit through fortification that they need to survive and be healthy. But on the same token, it's like, well, what if we just made more whole foods part of the WIC program? They would be forced to buy those and aren't those healthier than the cereals. So I'm all, you know, yeah. I'm trying to figure out and, and look, like I, you know, I'm just really trying to get to that middle ground because people are raised thinking if they know anything like a lobbyist. I mean, thank you for smoking. Like, let's be honest. That's what we know of. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Wait, I mean, I, I guess I always object to everybody using the word spin. Mm. OK. I mean, I'm I was arguing the facts. OK. Now, people might disagree with, you know, my position, but. I don't think arguing the facts is spinning, okay? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's an argument that, I mean, once again, sitting in Senator Levin's office, the other fellow had great integrity, was an honest, decent guy that had a different view of the world and a different opinion. Mm -hmm. So we had a legitimate difference of opinion. And, um, you know, the, it goes back to, Chris, I get the other thing I, I, I bring up. I put up a chart that shows up the composition of the United States Congress by religion. And I always try to point out that, you know, the reason people hate Congress is because it works as it was designed to work. <laughs> because what does a cowboy from Wyoming have in common, common with a Hispanic from Harlem? Nothing. Man, you are a great lobbyist, though. But that, like, that's a, a very true point. It's it's oh, an it's interesting true. argument, right? And you put up the chart and shows you got X number of Catholics, you got Baptists, you got Muslims, you got Hindus, you got Universalists, you've got agnostics, and you take five hundred and thirty-five people from all these walks of life and put them together under a dome and say, okay, we want you to all agree and figure out how to resolve the most complex, difficult issues facing this country. And usually I'm looking at a group that's, the, you know, the, the Petoskey Rotary or something. <laughs> and I say, you can't look at a more hom homogeneous group than 100 of you sitting here, and you couldn't agree on all these things. Yeah, it's a great point. What about the fact that when the idea of Congress was, uh, was dreamed up, was initiated— we, yeah. we had a much more homogenous society. And so perhaps, and I'm not saying we did because I actually don't think we did, but perhaps we could get more things done. Is there now something wrong with the system because we're so different, so partisan that, you know, our differences are what's holding us back from progress? Yeah, but see, but that's my point. Your version of progress is someone else's is not someone else's. Right. Good point. Point. And, and, you know, the other thing I try to bring up is these people go to Washington with their guns blazing <laughs> my way or the highway. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, there's a fun little thing I like to bring up. I go, OK, everybody, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but they're not not their own set of facts. OK. Mm. That's kind of, and I like to say, OK, let's do real simple. We're going to start off a little civics quiz. Who's the first president of the United States? So everybody goes, well, George Washington. 
And I go, well, what about John Hanson? And they go, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> there were eight presidents of the United States before George Washington. Come on, no way. Look it up. <laughs> Under the Articles of Confederation. Real presidents? or what is this? President, like... The title was President of the United States in Congress Assembled. I feel like, I feel, see, I feel like this is what lobbyists do. They take George the, Washington <laughs> voted for John Hanson, who was the first president of the United States in Congress. John Hancock was a president of the United States in Congress assembly. There were eight one-year terms under the Articles of Confederation before they decided, well, this isn't really working well enough, mm -hmm. so we need a U.S. Con we need a constitution. But I could argue, if if your title was, President of the United States in Congress assembled, you could arguably you were the first president, right? But but is that and again this is this is fascinating because I feel like this is lobbying. But Chris, let, let me let me finish up. Oh yeah. But bring it up in the point was you know everybody goes well, I said well this is simple just do what's right this is straightforward. Mm. It's never that simple. Mm -hmm. It's never that straightforward. You fly into Washington D.C. On most places in the United States, when you do an approach to an airport, you do downwind, base, and final. They are straight lines. Straight downwind, turn right, go to base, turn right, go to final. Not when you go to Washington on the southerly approach to runway 19. Hmm. You take the runway visual approach where you follow the Potomac. Yeah. You're you talking see, about flying into DCA. DCA. Yes, Route sir. Eight. You follow... It's not quite the same. It's not quite as simple. Mm -hmm. It's not as straightforward as those other people. And I just use that as kind of a fun example, but it's kind of indicative of where you're going. And it's it it just when the like I said, these people go to Washington guns blazing about my way or the highway. Well, what about that cowboy from Wyoming? What about that Hispanic from Harlem? Hmm. And that's why. It has to come out in the middle. Right. No, and, and, and you actually took the words out of my mouth. I'm, I'm glad kind of you, you just kept going because that's what I was going to say is, well, this sounds like you can even use facts to support numerous sides. And that's kind of what you were saying. Even quote unquote facts can't be black and white. Yeah, that, that's that's what debating issues is all about. Right. This is interesting because so as you were mentioning, you know, what you did as a lobbyist, you know, um, you stood behind it and you were utilizing facts. And, and I, I get that, you know, you you were using the system in which you were working in, in, in a way that, you know, arguably is not not bad. It's, it's, it's good. It's capitalism, et cetera. So how then do we translate that to these companies that are obviously doing harm, such as the tobacco industry? I will I will also say the firearms industry maybe we don't need to get into that but you know cuz they could make the same argument but I just don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that that's your opinion though. I mean that's that's back to my point is you've got 535 plus a few delegates and commissioners uh but anyways 535 members of Congress that we all sent there. Uh and that's the responsibility of people that vote to have people make judgment calls. Mm. And your opinion in the same as mine in the same as earth. Um, and, and that's that's the dance of democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it keeps coming back to. And, you know, the the other thing, let's, I'm going to digress for a second. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, all this money, you know. Yes, it's, that's what I was going to ask you. The money, the money. I, it's terrible. But you know what? I take. You know, and this once again ruins the narrative because people don't want to hear it. But, you know, back to the Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. The most influential people are still people active, involved on the ground in members' districts. And, you know, if if you go, there, there's a famous line I love to use. John Bro was a senator from Louisiana. He's a great guy. Well-liked on both sides of the aisle, sort of conservative Democrat. And he had this great line. He said, I can't be bought, but I can be rented. OK, <laughs> well, what he what he was doing was defending the sugar industry. OK. And it was the sugar program. And he went into the Reagan White House and 
basically traded his vote for the Reagan budget for support for the sugar program. Marco Rubio's for the sugar program, by the way. Okay. What does that mean to be for the sugar program? I actually am really interested in this topic. So I'd love to. Well, I mean, but I guess my point of this, and then we'll get into the sugar program, oh, sure. is that they're constituents of yours. You're sent there by them. And regardless of who contributes, how active they are, where they come from, when it boils down to it, the constituent influence supersedes all these other influences because you need to look after your constituents. But so take somebody like Chris Christie, who I read an article, I saw something about oftentimes he did not act in the best interest of New Jersey because he was more concerned about getting uh, you know, reelected or running for presidency. So yeah. what about that when they, they actually turn on their constituents for the betterment of their own personal growth and career? Well, they do that at their own political peril. Gotcha. I mean, you, can, you can decide, you know, if you're, if you're from Michigan, I guess you could go out and vote against the auto industry. Sure. Uh, you know, you know, more power to you. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's your call. I mean, that's that's your yeah, you make your own judgment. Right. Uh, and like you were saying, that can come back to haunt you. And it does, because then people say, look, you wouldn't stick up for us when you were, you know, senator or governor or whatever it might be. Why, yeah. why are you going to do it as president or, you know? Yeah. Right. OK. And, you know, you do it at your own peril. And, uh, you know, or other times people say, you know, I really respect that guy. What integrity, what political courage. Here, here's a great one. I mean, I, I love to use. Do you know who Jeanette Rankin is? No idea. <laughs> okay. This pro this is a person that has probably more political courage than any politician I've ever heard of in United States history. And you don't know who she is. Nope. But nope, most people don't. Jeanette Rankin was a Republican from Montana. She was the first woman elected to the United States House of Representatives in nineteen sixteen. Okay. She was a pacifist. She was one of 50 people in the House of Representatives to vote against entering World War One. Wow, that's pretty impressive, right? Yeah. You know? But listen to this. She was reelected in 1940. She was the only person, the only one to vote against entering World War Two after Pearl Harbor. Hmm. Now, you can agree, disagree, think she's crazier than a loon. You can think whatever you want. But talk about political courage. Yeah. To walk out there after Pearl Harbor, you're a pacifist, and vote no. Now, I don't think she was re she wanted to be elected. <laughs> yeah. But by God, more power to her. Right. You know? I mean, I, like I said, I, I've never heard a story. I've never heard anybody with more guts in the history of the whole country. Call it guts, call it crazy. <laughs> call it guts, call it crazy. Call it <laughs> she did it. That's interesting. Well, so let's um let's go back to the thing you were mentioning about, you know, Rubio being for the sugar, what'd you call it? Not sugar, sugar industry, program. but sugar program. Yes. Define the sugar program and, and what it means to be for it. And then I want to I want to get into that a little more. Sure. Sure. The sugar program is the food industry has been fighting the sugar program since its inception. I think it's been around since, I don't know, 80 or something like that, 1980. And how it works is in very simple terms. And once again, I have this in the book is the U S sugar growers, the beet and the cane people have come up with a program that enables them to charge. It used to be ballpark twice the world price of sugar. And they do it by, it's a it's a uh, price per pound loan program where they go to the USDA the beginning of the year. Once again, this is a gross simplification, but it's sure. accurate. Um, they go to the USDA and they borrow the money to grow the sugar. And then at the end of the growing year, if they don't get the price per pound of the loan they got from the USDA, they have a no fault loan program where they just give the sugar to the USDA and they keep the money. Okay. This sounds like bullshit. <laughs> well, it's incredible in the sense that it, it guarantees them a price per pound. that's double the world price. It's put 
you know, it's obviously charged to the purchasers of sugar. The, you know, food companies of the United States pay, end up paying twice what they could pay if they were doing it in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, uh, it's a program that secures the viability and the longevity and the, you know, the, the sugar growers, whether you're beet or cane in the probably 15 or so states that are, you know, sugar growing places, Florida, Michigan, Minnesota, Hawaii, Louisiana, and so on. And the way they do it is, I always call it, they have on their side the intensity of the issue. And there's only one vote counts to them. Only one vote counts, the sugar program. If on the other hand, you're a big food company, you come in and you might have taxes, trade, marketing, advertising, you name it, all these other issues, okay? Mm. So it's one of 10, let's make it up, or 15 or something. Well, if you're a congressperson or a senator, you know that the big food company, you can help them on eight other things. If you're, But if the sugar grower walks in, only one vote counts. So they've got the intensity of sure. the issue. Yeah, Your friend sense. or foe, based on that. And Chris, I learned this as a young, young kid when I was a gopher on Capitol Hill. There was a federal trade commission rule that was going to regulate the funeral home industry. And it was going to tell them, you know, you had to post your prices and you couldn't do this and couldn't do that. And so it was, you know, consumer liberal supported issue. And I remember forget I was sitting there. I happened to be the kid in the back of the room, but there was these liberal congressmen talking about it. And the guy, I forget who he was, but he was a liberal Democrat. And he said, well, I'm voting against that damn rule. And they said, why is that? And he said, well, you know, you know how many funeral homes I got in my district? Uh-huh. They're active and involved. And the only thing they care about is this vote. That's it. That's the only thing that's ever going to matter, whether I voted right or wrong on this issue. And I, I never forget, it was the ultimate lesson to me that the the intensity of the issue is important. This week's episode is brought to you by the wonderful folks over at Igloo. Listen, we all struggle with productivity. We're constantly under pressure to accomplish more and do it faster. There's no one definitive way to accomplish that, so we devise our own methods to make things work. Igloo can help you keep doing things your way, only better. Collaboration shouldn't be painful. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Do yourself a favor, sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash smart people. That's igloosoftware.com slash smart people. And now back to the show. You know, I, I really appreciate that story and, and the way you spelled that out because you know, I consider myself fairly educated and I've been in DC for a long time, but I've never thought about the fact that these state representatives who, you know, go to Congress or whatever, even if on a moral level they disagree, and I'm not saying that happens, but even if they they are elected by, you know, the the population of their state and they have to represent their wishes. Now, I, I can already hear the there's probably listeners like in their car going, yeah, yeah, Chris, but you're missing a point. I don't know what the point is. I, like, I don't know what the rebuttal to that would be other than we get into, you know, our voter system isn't perfect and it's not truly representing the will of the people. But but that's for another story. But I've never thought about it in that way that uh, the politicians are really supposed to be just the mouthpiece of the majority of their constituents. Well, you know, that that's interesting in that you live in Virginia, right? I do. Yeah. Well, they call the representatives, the people that are in the state legislature are called delegates there, I believe. Right. Uh, yes. And some people will argue that there's a distinction between being a delegate and a representative, which I happen to agree with. A delegate, and, and, and that's not to say this is this is the reality of Virginia, but I'm just saying the sure. origin of the word is uh, a delegate is sent there. You delegated the responsibility. They go there. They vote according to what you told them to vote. It's kind of like the uh, electoral college. OK, mm-hmm. a representative, on the other hand, 
is not sent there with a clear mission of you're for the following things. You go there to represent and to use your judgment. Ah. Okay. Now, whether that's a meaningless distinction kind of is nowadays, but (laughs) it's an interesting historical note in that, you know, when I, when I say, who are you going to vote for? I don't know. It's, you know, people might think a little wacky, but I don't, you know, it's not so much what your position on the issue today, but what kind of judgment do you have of the issues that I don't know or you're going to be talking about six months from now? Yes, I love that. I love that. And what kind of decision are you going to make six months from now about something that's not even on the radar screen? And their ability to critically think and really yeah. where do they stand on certain issues is indicative of where they'll stand on future ones. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about the monetary influence then, like money in the entire system. I mean, obviously that's becoming this control. Yeah. And so I don't know, like tell us, okay, let's go back to your roots as a lobbyist. Can you just go in with corporate money and buy your, what you want? No, 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 no. I mean, First, first of all, that'd be illegal. Okay. Well, well, let's not talk illegal in politics. Come on. <laughs> but, but, but it's but it's not. Uh, that's not the reality of it. Um, it, you know, everybody says this, but it's true. What it does is buys you access. Okay. Mm. And I like to put it this way. First of all, let me let me once again digress for a second. You know, people talk like people that are in the House and the Senate came from somewhere. I mean, these are your neighbors. These are people you grew up with. They, you know, they went to high school with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they came from wherever you live, you know, uh, they, they, they weren't shipped here from somewhere else. These are, these are real people with real emotions and real relationships. And so if you're a United States Senator, you're the chairman of the Senate finance committee, and you're rewriting the tax laws of the United States. Well, you you have up up for grabs literally billions of dollars you have an infinite number of people trying to see you in a finite amount of time okay mm-hmm. so you're sitting there washington dc you're the chair of the senate finance committee and you get a call from someone who you knew when you were on the city commission in Des Moines, Iowa. And then they helped you and they were friends and they were neighbors and they helped you get elected to the city commission of Des Moines, Iowa. Then you became a state representative and they were, they knocked on doors for you. And they gave you a hundred bucks and contributed. Then you became a state senator. Then you became a member of the house. Then you became a United States senator. Well, old Charlie or Susie has been your friend, supporter, contributor for 20, 30 years. Well, old Charlie, Susie, whatever, they're the lobbyists for the, you know, what's happening now company, wherever you come from. (laughs) And they call up and they want to come see you. On the other hand, you get a call from some guy from some really nice company or some really good organization or some really nice group who you don't know, never met, never seen, never been involved with, but they want to come see you about the tax bill. Who are you going to see? Yep. Who are you going to see? Person I know. You know, that's what it is. And so as I talk about in the book, what you do is you go to fundraisers to create relationships, some sooner rather than later. You know, the old saying is, uh, you know, money talks and early money shouts. Okay. (laughs) Well, the people that shouted are the ones, are your old friends you're going to see. Yeah. And so you go to fundraisers and, you know, the routine in Washington, I talk talk about this book, you know, you might go to three or four night, you'll go to the up on Capitol Hill, then you go downtown, then you go, you know, you run around cabs back and forth and you go there. And part of what you're doing is the staff who surrounds these members. And as they get more powerful, they get bigger staff and more people surrounding them. Well, you get to know and see them and figure out who they are, and they get to know you and see you and figure out who you are. So when you need to get a meeting with Senator Schnort um, and you call the scheduler, they know that you're an acquaintance, a friend, a supporter, 
and to return your call as opposed to the person who they've never heard from, never seen from, don't know who they are. Sure. And so human nature wins. That's not to say it's perfect. That's not to say, and I'm not being, you know, a total Boy Scout here. Sure. But that's the day-to-day reality. Well, so it sounds like, I mean, and you've been in politics for a long time. It yeah. sounds like you, you do have a, a certain amount of faith in the system. Is that yeah. a fair assessment? Yeah. So I want to ask you, what do you think is broken? Oh, I mean, I think Citizens United is the, that, that court case was a fiasco. Yeah. I don't, I don't agree with it. Uh-huh. But, you know, here's another thing. Everybody says, well, that's, you know, that's not constitutional. I say, you know what's constitutional? Is what five of nine people say those words mean. Right. That's constitutional. Okay. You know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. And people can argue how many angels on the head of a pin and all that sort of business. <laughs> but what's constitutional, what those words mean, is what five of nine people say they mean. And, you know, people forget five of nine people have looked at the exact same words and interpret them to mean totally different things. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's the system. Do I think there's a lot of, you know, I, I, I don't agree with Citizens United. I don't think company, I don't think people ought to be able to give unlimited money. And I think it's a distortion of the whole free speech notion, but I'm not one of five and nine. Right. Yeah. Oh man, gosh, that one's such a heated topic and I agree with you, but you know, I think we could go down that rabbit hole, but now I'm interested. I mean, there's a number of things, but tell us about, give us a, a look behind the curtain at being a corporate lobbyist as in it's really hard because I'm essentially asking you to wrap up your career, but like, what is the method, if you could draw it out, from which you get a uh, an assignment or sure. whatever to... That's a great question. You know what I mean? All right, great. <laughs> I'm that, glad you understood it. That's a great question. <laughs> and, and what happens is, and I'll uh, mention another aspect of it, usually what happens is um, there will be a department of the company that will come to me. We talked about WIC before. Well, that was the sales and marketing people. They'd say, you know, we want to get in this program. How do we get in? Uh, A lot of issues, it's the tax department will come to me. And they'll say, there's this provision that we don't think is right, or we would, you know, like to have it read otherwise. And so it's basically the departments within the company come to you with the issues. Sales, marketing, finance, trade, tariffs, uh, you name it. And they come to you and they say, the government says we can't do this, or we want the government to say we can do this. How do we do it? And your job as a lobbyist is you're the Sherpa. And people ask me about writing position papers. And I say, I, I don't think I can remember ever writing a position paper. Hmm. And they look at you and say, what? And I said, well, what you do is I'm not the expert in tax. I'm not the expert in nutrition. I'm not the expert in the marketing program. I said, what I'm an expert in is the political process and who is in positions to do things to make the changes or prevent the changes we want. So what I do is uh, the closest thing I would do to a position paper is you have to boil it down and take it out of corporate ease and put it into political language. So you, you're an interpreter. You're a translator. And I used to go with, once again, really smart people. And I always had to caution them, don't talk the lingo of the business because the people you're talking to aren't familiar with that lingo. Right. You got you to gotta put it in language they understand. So what I would do is, you know, tell them, okay, what we need to do is go to this subcommittee of this committee and the people we're going to talk to, these are their, and I don't mean this in negative, I need a positive. These are, these are their parochial quote district interest. This is why I think we can argue that they would want to help us and why they ought to be on our side. And you identify, you lay out the roadmap of, you know, who you need to go see, when you need to go see them, and what the relationships are. The other thing that I emphasize to people is 
personal relationships are critical. Once again, these are real people. These are folks down the street. Well, they have friends and foes. And one of the things I talk about in the book was the congressman who put me through college and law school uh, was a liberal Democrat from New Jersey. Well, a close acquaintance buddy of his, they were personally great friends, was a Republican from Ohio <laughs> who was what we would call a Tea Party guy now. Okay? Wow. He was one of the original right-wingers. Well, I used to list, watch lobbyists come in, talk to my boss, and you know be critical of this guy, not knowing they're best friends. Right. I mean, you're probably going to have a beer in about an hour. And I used to just look at him and want to say, stop, stop. (laughs) But the reason I mentioned that in the sense of getting the job done is, you know, you might have a a junior member from some district. But if you also realize that they're best friends with the chairperson of the committee. Well, if they go to the chairperson of the committee and ask a favor, probably a pretty good chance the chair is going to help. them. Right. Right. no one will know. No one will understand why the chair is doing it. But, you know, they're politically or personally or there's some relationship between this member and that person. And that's why they're helping them. I, that makes sense. And so you have to know, even when you break it down to the committee and the subcommittee and then you bring it to them. And is it a, is it a debate? Is it a is it a pitch? Is it a, a stand up with a PowerPoint? You it's know, a, no, it's a pitch. It's usually a verbal pitch with a what. And the other thing is, it used to be the rule of thumb was you always brought a, a one pager. Ah, uh, you you boil it down to one page, and then hopefully there's a staff person there that you can you know explain it to and discuss it with, and that'll hopefully be supportive of you. And then the other rule of thumb was you always ask them to do something Mm. because the last thing you want them to say, oh, great, you know, this is of great concern and interest to me and walk away. That means they're doing nothing. Right. Thanks (laughs) for the information. Yeah. If they're concerned and interested, you've lost. Okay. Right. But what you do is you'll go in and say, you know, here's this issue. This is why we think you ought to be interested and involved with it. And we would hope you would do this or, you know, call the chair or write the agency or, you know, hold a press conference or something, you know, right. Something tangible to sort of move the ball. So, you know, with all that in mind, they basically, uh, at the beginning part, you were saying a division within the company and in your case, Kellogg, but any company comes to you and says, Hey, here's our issue. And you have to navigate the political terrain. Right. Did Kellogg, ever come to you with something you did not want to fight for? Not really. I mean, no. I mean, there's nothing I found, you know, personally objective or, you know, thought it was morally wrong or anything. Mm. I mean, one thing you do have to do is oftentimes the imp- tell the emperors they don't have clothes mm. because they will come in and ask politically unrealistic things. And so you got to be the skunk of the party. I mean, I'd be up and we had a room called Exec B, which is up in the chairman's office. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, well, you know, let's go do this. And it, it's like another rule of thumb is you never go ask a member to do something they just politically can't do. OK. Mm-hmm. And, and let's go back to the sugar program. OK. You don't go down to the heart of Louisiana and ask a Republican or Democrat or whoever it is, you know, 99 percent of the time to be against the sugar program. OK. It's just politically untenable. Right. It's unrealistic. And so despite, you know, people ranting and raving at the headquarters about what abuse this is and how much it costs and how in the world could they be for it, you have to look and say, you know, this ain't going to fly, guys. You know, don't we'd be wasting our time. But in that example, who is the who is saying we want you to go in and fight on behalf of. No, sure. like, well, the, you know, the purchasing guys would come in and say the sugar program is costing us. We used to say back then fifty million dollars a year, and they'd say you got to go do something about it. In fact, actually, it's in the book. There was a guy named Joe Tubilowitz that was the head of purchasing, who's a great guy, and he used to like to gig me every. I was I'm an early riser, and I he was too, and we'd always be like, you know, when a coffee shop opened, the first ones there, and he'd gig me every day. He'd say, Franklin, what are you doing about that sugar program? <laughs> And I talk about in the book, I used to try to avoid seeing Tabilowitz because the answer was nothing. 
but, but but see that what I'm saying is like the I, I feel the same way about tobacco. Like who is saying it's a good idea other than the companies which are profiting immensely from it? And and if that's the case, and it's clearly a national threat in terms of health and the actual costs, I I just you know what I mean? Like I, I don't I don't understand why the the political system is such that you have say this lobbying firm or whoever it might be that can outweigh the obvious health implications of 250 million people. You know what I mean? Well, there are people that disagree with you. But how? You're the cowboy <laughs> and they're the Hispanic. I mean, I, that's the only way I can answer the question is, yeah. you know, I don't smoke. I'm not for tobacco. I don't, you know, uh, but uh, I, I the people you. that go in and, you know, raise issues, whether economic, uh, freedom of choice, liberty. Yeah. And I could, you know, I could dream you up all sorts of ones. And, yeah. You know, I see people standing out in the streets smoking cigarettes and I don't think that's the brightest thing people ought to be doing, but Hey, that's let them do it. That's a good, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. I, I, you I know, guess they're, they're libertarians mm-hmm. that are there. Um, actually, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll go off. I mean, I'll, I'll get in a lot of trouble with my liberal Democrat friends here, <laughs> but you know, I used to always be one, you know, they wanted to, you know, ban smoking in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Okay. And all these States are passing that. And I used to say, well, you know, if, if you don't like smoking in a restaurant, don't go to the restaurant. I mean, I'm, you know, that's your call. Right? I mean, if he's the owner of the restaurant. Let him, if, as long as it's a legal product that's available. And, and then other people say, well, you know, there's secondhand smoke and, you know, you shouldn't have exposed people and you limit their right to go to the restaurant. And I was like, well, you know, you vote with your feet. Don't go to the restaurant. I, you know, um, so once again, you feel strongly. You go to Washington, your gun's blazing. Right. It's the way or the highway. Well, there's other people that argue different sides of the coin there. The opposite. No, you know, it's this is one of the reasons why I love this podcast, because even though you and I, I have a feeling, agree on most things, you have the ability to see both sides of the coin, given your, you know, life experiences. And I just get so frustrated, as do many people, even those that don't agree with me. But you know, at, wait, this seems like obvious common sense. And you say, yeah, but what we're built on is the fact that others are allowed to disagree with you. Yeah. You know, it's they, so frustrating. Common sense on the other side. Right. Oh, man. George, this is fascinating stuff. I And I got to tell people, you know, your book, Raisin Brand and Other Serial Wars, short read, like 160 something pages. Yeah. Um, but... Really, kind of. If you enjoy this interview, you're gonna love that, and you have stories throughout it. Just, just really great stuff. I, I, I really well, appreciate. And, it. and what I'm really enjoying is, is uh, if I can put this plug in, you know, yeah, I'm on yeah. the speaking circuit with it, and I'm really having a great time with that because I've I've been to colleges and civic clubs and book clubs and kind of traveling around the country, and uh, I, it, I'm doing this because uh, I'm having fun. Right. Uh, I'm having fun and uh, and I'm also trying to uh, just, you know, make people aware of this whole world of lobbying that really is just sort of uh, something people are aware of, but not familiar with. And they really don't get the day to day nitty gritty. So thank thank you on the compliments. And, you know, back to the book I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion here that I purposely made it. A, I call it a plane ride overview and I it's a supplemental read. For people, I wrote it for supplemental read for people in business school initially. Mm. And the idea was that when you graduate from, you know, you get your MBA from Harvard. Well, at least when you go to work and there's the government relations department down the hall, you'll have some notion of what those people do. Because right now, when you walk out of business school, you don't have the foggiest idea what they do. And it's a fundamental part of business. And, you know, back to, uh, you know, Chris, what I was talking about, most business lobbying is business versus business. I was thinking it, that. It, it really you know, is. And, and and I mentioned, you know, I was telling the story about I don't know what pro-business means. I don't know what the word special interest means. You know what special interest is? That's the people opposed to you. Because <laughs> the Sierra Club is a special interest. Ralph Nader's a special interest. Kellogg Company is a special interest. The national right, they're all special interests. That's why the hell they're there. Hmm. But special interests 
is just a pejorative you use when they're opposed to you. <laughs> That's all. It's a meaningless term. I, you know, and then I think about when, when you mentioned special interest, I think about, yeah, you know, I've heard it and I definitely, because I'm not as educated in this as, as people such as yourself, I go, yeah, that, that pisses me off, you know? And I think, how can special interest groups essentially buy votes that help their, you know, help their interest, whatever it might be? And that's what you were saying with kind of Citizens United. That's an extreme example of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, people writing 10 and 15 million dollar checks to people, you know, I, I just don't believe that's what the, you know, I don't, I don't think the forefathers were thinking about Enron's constitutional first amendment rights when they wrote that. Okay. I just, I don't buy that. But once again, it's what five and nine people say it means is what it means, whether regardless of what you and I think. So what's interesting then is there, we're obviously drawing a line in the sand, there's a difference between, say, Enron going, donating $15 million and essentially guaranteeing that that politician holds up their, their, I don't know, their interests, as opposed to somebody like Kellogg paying a team of lobbyists to go to D.C. and argue the same thing. That's a, that's a line that's being drawn, right? I don't know if it's a line. I'm not quite... Um... Well, I'm saying, where do you think the distinction is if the $15 million goes directly to the politician or it goes to the lobbyists that then influence the politician? Well, I mean, we're, we're talking about two, two different things in the sense that you have um, political action committees which make contributions to the campaigns sure. of people running for office, okay? Mm-hmm. And there are limitations on how much you can contribute. There are reporting requirements of lobbying activity, which in any given day, there, there are 12 to 15,000 lobbyists in Washington, mm. registered lobbyists, okay? Mm-hmm. Of that number, how many are really lobbyists is a hell of a lot smaller. <laughs> but in fairness to those people, being safe, I mean, I used to always say, I'm, I'll, I'll register anywhere. I mean, I'll... If they want to put what I do every day on the front page of the New York Times, I don't care. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I have nothing to hide. I'm very forthcoming. So to their credit, a lot of people say, well, I'll just register as lobbyists because I'm going to go up there, even though in the day-to-day nitty-gritty reality of Washington, they're not really, you know, lobbyists. Right. Uh, as, as, as we commonly think of them. But, and then, so you have political action committees, which are campaigned, but then in Citizens United, okay, that just allows these super PAC kind of things mm. where people just write checks that are, you know, theoretically unaffiliated with the um, camp, you know, separate from the campaign. But the theory was on citizens and, you know, some constitutional scholar probably jump on me. But, you know, is if you as a citizen want to advocate for a position on an issue or a, a undertaking, you know, you shouldn't be limited on how much you can spend because you have unlimited first amendment rights. Right. Right. And so, but now it's become distorted in that where you have these, you know, groups that are theoretically separate from campaigns on spending unlimited dollars, um, to, you know, pursue issues and activities that in reality are part of the campaign. Mm. I mean, Absolutely. Oh, man. It's all interesting stuff. Well, George, again, I really want to say thank you for taking, you know, this amount of time out of your day and to really, you know, obviously I'm here recommending the book. And um, if people like what they hear, then then they can pick it up. But in the same token, just to educate us on and educate, you know, when you go speaking at colleges um, on things that. You know, where wherever your stance may be, it it is part of our political discourse and not enough people know about it. Like I mentioned, as a business major, I and, you know, I still didn't know about it. Well, George, again, thank you so much. I wanted to give you a minute here. We've, we mentioned your book, but um, is there anything else you want listeners to be aware of? Is there uh, anywhere else you want them to go? A website, uh, you know, let them know um, so they can find you or what else to do. Sure. Uh, my email is george at franklinpublicaffairs.com. And uh, I'd love to hear from listeners. I hope they I hope they buy the book. I'd love to hear their impressions of it. 
I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of being a Luddite on technology. My email, I'm excited when it goes in and out. I don't have a blog. I don't have this. My website, I think, is so dated, I'm not even sure what's on there anymore. Uh, but I am on the circuit having a, a lot of fun with that, and I, I love to hear from people. So George at FranklinPublicAffairs.com, and uh, the book's available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, you know, sort of the typical places. Yeah, and we'll, we'll link to that for sure. Love to hear from you. All right, George. Thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Take care. All right. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with George Franklin. You can find his book, Raisin Bran and Other Serial Wars, 30 Years of Lobbying for the Most Famous Tiger in the World, on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you do decide to purchase it through Amazon, don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating, review, comment over there. And if you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up, so make sure you stay tuned at smartpeoplepodcast.com, and we will see you all next week.